Hello and welcome to Murder in the Boardroom. I'm Helen Saxton and I'll be bringing you an eclectic mix of episodes, all connected in some way with my business of delivering unique team building experiences through interactive murder mystery challenges. I'll be covering a range of subjects, sometimes my thoughts on a particular personal experience, sometimes a nostalgic look back at my childhood influences and of course some current advice and comment on how to get the best out of your team. The theme of the murder mystery will always be present, as you will discover. This week, episode 10, a look back on my childhood hero, Tintin the Reporter. I've never really wanted a tattoo, but I discovered, in vino veritas, that if I were to take the plunge, then my design of choice would involve a certain Belgian detective, no, not the other mustachioed one, and his faithful dog, Snowy. I'm talking, of course, about Tintin the reporter, my lifelong obsession which I have successfully passed on to my eldest son. I had lesser luck passing on my obsession with Richard Scarry's The Great Steamboat Mystery, which is worthy of a post all of its own, it was so good. Happy wedding day to Mr and Mrs Pig. They're celebrating with a big costume party aboard a steamboat, but Mr Pig worries someone might steal the gifts, so he invites Detective Sam Cat and Dudley Pig, disguised as pirates, to come along. Sure enough, someone soon swoops Mrs Pig's new pearls. Abounding with Scarry's trademark slapstick, pranks and pratfalls, this fun mystery will delight kids. What's not to love, it did delight me, but I digress. Much has been written about Tintin, his creator Hergé and the sometimes controversial politics surrounding them. When I first discovered him at the age of eight, this was clearly of no interest to me. And although I find it all fascinating now, this blog is about my memories and the personal effect it had on me, not the world at large. In a nutshell, though, according to the official Tintin website, Tintin is neither a surname nor a first name. It is much more than that. Tintin is a totally unique world, a myth or a saga. Tintin is created from Hergé's subconscious desire to be perfect, to be a hero. The hero who everyone between 7 and 77 years old wants to be, or become, while reading the adventures of Tintin. I remember exactly when and where it happened. We were on our first ever holiday abroad to visit family who were living in Greece in 1981. I was eight. We were visiting those very same cousins who used to play murder in the dark with us, and my uncle who has since reached the dizzy heights of playing dug deeply in our interactivity and outstanding murder. My cousins, being slightly older, had already discovered Tintin, and they lent me one of the books, which oddly wasn't even a proper Tintin book at all. It was called Tintin and the Lake of Sharks, a poor imitation, having been written and illustrated under Hergé's supervision in 1972 by his friend Michel Rainier. However, it did do one thing, which was to introduce me to the characters which led me to discover the real thing and become hooked. Thirty-four years later, I can still pick up a copy of one of those classic adventures and read it from cover to cover, thoroughly engrossed. If I am ever presented with a series of books written in a specific order, I simply cannot read them out of sequence. It's one of my pet hates and it just doesn't sit well with me. I wonder now if this stems from my initial haphazard introduction to Tintin starting with the wrong book and then reading them in whichever order they happened to appear. Another instalment usually appeared annually on the 11th of March, my sister's birthday. My parents introduced the brilliant idea of an unbirthday present, meaning that I would receive a small gift on my sister's birthday and vice versa. It was usually a Tintin or Asterix book, and so over the years we built up the whole collection, which I still possess now, if a bit dog-eared, and which has been passed on to my aforementioned eldest son. It caused me much confusion for a while. For some reason I hadn't quite registered that they should be read in order and would be mildly confused as to why Captain Haddock, for example, would appear in one book and then not appear to exist in the next. 
It took me a rather embarrassingly long time to register that Tintin didn't meet Captain Haddock until the crab with the golden claws, so was understandably absent from any preceding books. Professor Calculus bumbled his way into Red Rackham's treasure by trying to sell the explorers his shark-shaped submarine, and the Thompson twins met Tintin under the erroneous impression that he was a crook in the cigars of the pharaoh, and subsequently spent most of the book trying to arrest him. This last one had me really baffled. I couldn't understand why Tinty's great friends would be so set against him until I worked out this was their first meeting. This was when the light bulb lit up and it all fell into place. Since then I endeavoured to keep them all in the correct order in pride of place on the bookshelf. The Thompson Twins Although not necessarily my favourite characters, there's enough content to discuss there to fill a whole different blog, I find the Thompson Twins interesting in that they are much like PC Goon in the Five Find Outers and Dog. They differ in that they are genuine friends of Tintin, but they still fill the role of the incompetent authority figure. Again, how on earth did they ever reach the heights of detective, constantly being outwitted by our hero? Perhaps they are there for comedy effect, or simply to enhance the intrepid antics of Tintin. But whatever the reason, they certainly add an element of comedy, with their mispronunciations, inept attempts at divining, recurring strange hair colour and growth following the ingestion of some dodgy tablets in the land of black gold, and of course there are inappropriate disguises which allow them to stick out like a sore thumb. Following on from my lesson in detective work with the key under the door trick in the five find outers and dog, I was keen to discover more within the pages of Tintin. One particular gem sticks in mind, which I plagiarised shamelessly for a story written at school, which finds our hero baffled trying to find out the identity of the dastardly villains who attempted to run him over in the broken ear. He manages to make a note of the number plate, 169MW, and tracks down the owner as one Eugene Treblebob. Eugene is clearly not who he's looking for, and on his way home he accidentally drops his notebook on which he had written the number. It lands upside down, and he realises the real villains, Ramon and Alonso, must have turned their number plate upside down. He should be looking for plates bearing the number MW691. Simple, but brilliant. These books are packed full of clever little tricks like this, and there are far too many to mention, but other gems include Snowy ploughing through snow and wind to return King Ottica's sceptre after it falls out of Tintin's pocket, despite being distracted by a bone on the way. Tintin accidentally tripping and clinging onto the beard of his companion Hector Alambic to see if it was real, and of course employing some real sleuthing skills to find the stolen jewel in the Castafiora Emerald. As it was usually pretty clear who the villains were in these adventures, they were less of a who-done-it than a how-caught-it. The only possible exception is the aforementioned Castafiora Emerald, in which the delightful Bianca Castafiora descends on Marlin Spike for a visit and is the victim of an apparent robbery. It's a beautifully clever piece, crammed full of mysterious strangers tampering with the electrics, mysterious footsteps, jewel theft, gypsies and an accidental proposal. It's only at the end, when the quietly confident Tintin reveals the benign causes of all of the dramatic events, that you realise that nothing actually criminal happened at all. Each book was a roller coaster across continents from peaceful idyllic Marlin Spike Hall to the summit of Ben Nevis. There was never a dull moment, and I could not get enough of them. In 2011, the long-awaited Tintin film was made, and I approached it with excitement and a mass of trepidation. How on earth could this live up to the books? Having only had the previous experience of the Canadian TV series Hergé's Adventures of Tintin as a benchmark, I was dubious. In reality, it was, in my opinion, brilliant. With the main story being taken from one of the great two-parters, The Secret of the Unicorn and Red Rackham's Treasure, the others being Destination Moon and Explorers on the Moon, The Blue Lotus and Cigars of the Pharaoh, and The Seven Crystal Balls and The Prisoners of the Sun, 
It interweaved brilliantly with parts of The Crab with the Golden Claws to introduce Captain Haddock and still remain true to the original books, although to my mind Captain Haddock does not have a Scottish accent. I took my eldest son to see it, who happens to be called Archie. In Tintin and the Picaros, we discover that Captain Haddock's first name is Archibald. A coincidence, but a pleasing serendipity nonetheless. The Art of Hergé I recently made a trip to London simply to experience a small exhibition called The Art of Hergé. It reminded me how beautifully drawn the books were, simple clean lines pioneered by Hergé and known as Lean Claire, clear lines. It was particularly exciting to see some of the original drawings, so much so that I might even be tempted to go through with that tattoo after all. But with hundreds of beautifully drawn frames and characters, how could I possibly choose? I hope you enjoyed listening. For more information, visit www.charadery.co.uk or find us on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook. Written and produced by me, Helen Saxton of Charadery, with music from www.purple-planet.com.